Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel and said, Here I am. And ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lied down. And the Lord called again Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall, speak, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel, at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I had have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, and he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told me, told you. For Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again to Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Lord, we thank you for the privilege, Lord, of having the record of your dealings with Israel during this time in Israel's history. Lord, we recognize that it is not simply an account for us to look at for information. It is an account, Lord, that you want to feed us and grow us through. And so, Lord, today I ask that I, as your messenger, would be faithful to represent your truth in a, in a way, Lord, that would affect the, 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 that truth going and impressing the hearts of all that are here. And Lord, this morning I know that people have had difficult weeks. I know that some have, have struggled with break-ins in their homes. I know that some are struggling with issues in their marriages. I know that some have lost loved ones. And Lord, there are, there are heartaches all throughout this place and there are difficulties that are facing us. And Lord, we need to hear from you this morning. And Lord, I ask that through your word that you would nurture us, you would strengthen us, and you would build us up 
Lord, to be uh, what you've called us to be and to rest completely and fully on you as our sovereign God. We ask this now in your holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Where there is no vision, the people perish, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. That is how Proverbs 29, 18 reads in the King James Version. Let me read it one more time. Where there is no vision, the people perish, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. He And if you grew up in a context where the King James Version was uh, what you use, you probably heard that on a number of different occasions. Now it's unfortunate uh, that the translators translated it this way in the context of, I want to say, looking ahead as to what that verse might mean today using English language because that verse oftentimes was used in the context of church to think about a forward visionary look as it relates to ministry or as it relates to missions. It was also unfortunate because um, it it is a, a verse that has been used at times to somehow justify a business model in the church. In other words, each year we must have a fresh vision for where the church is going. We must set goals and reach those goals or the people will suffer. The problem is, that's not what this verse is talking about. That is not what is driving through this text in Proverbs 29, 18. Now, although I do think that we need to look ahead with wisdom as far as ministry endeavors are concerned and and plan and evaluate, just like we're talking about the ministry health check and, and, and trying to set some goals to grow deeper as a church, like I said, that is not what this verse in Proverbs is saying. It is not talking about our need to have a visionary strategy or the results that will be people suffering somehow the fires of hell if we don't. What it is talking about is what happens when the word of God is not central. When it is slipped away and has been relegated to a place of unimportance in a culture even in a church, or even in the heart of an individual. When the faithful preaching and teaching of God's truth is the rare exception rather than the standard. You see, where there is no vision, the people perish, is rightly understood, and I think rightly translated in more modern translations like we use here, the ESV. Here's what the ESV says. Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. The blessed is he who keeps the law. See, this vision is not somehow a 21st century looking ahead. This vision is what a prophet would receive from God. God would reveal himself to a prophet in the context of a vision, and that vision was then to be proclaimed by that prophet to the people. When that stops, people are in trouble. People literally will run wild. They will cast off restraint. Let's ask ourselves if that is what has taken place 
in Israel in the context of 1 Samuel. What we've seen so far, the end of Joshua, or say end of Judges, is that there was no king in Israel, and the result of that was everyone did that was right in their own eyes. There was then a corrupt and a weak leadership, a corrupt and perverted worship taking place. But in the passage that we're going to look at today, you probably caught it as we read it, visions were rare. God had not been revealing himself to his people on a regular, systematic basis. It was the exception. It was rare in those days. Now why is that the case? Why is it in the context of Samuel that the word of God is rare? And we need to kind of drift back a little bit into the book of Judges and think about what is called the sin cycle that took place in that book, where God's people would at one point in time be worshiping God, but then slowly after time, after they they would let their guard down and they would be attracted by the things of the world, the people would run after other peoples that they were forbidden to intermarry with or to interact with. They'd be committing acts of immorality, they would be involved in intermarriage, and they would ultimately be worshiping other gods. And God then would bring um, this, from this, this wandering, a, a time of judgment where these now uh, of his own people would be under the oppression of those people that they had joined themselves to. So much so that at a certain point in time, those people would ultimately cry out to God for deliverance. And God, in his mercy and in his grace, would provide for them a deliverer called a judge. And through that deliverer or judge, he would judge his people and he would provide relief for them. The people would repent, they would be restored, the judge would be used by God to bring those people back to him and to bring those people out from their place of wickedness and the people then would be worshiping God again. The problem is in the book of Judges, we have the sin cycle over and over and over and over again. And so the end of the book of Judges opens the door now into our understanding of what's happening here in 1 Samuel because we're still kind of in this cycle. The people are under this this judgment of God. And so one of the ways that God would judge his people was to remove his revelation from them. Look, if you would please, with me at at the words of Amos in Amos chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. Amos chapter eight, verses 11 and 12. Here's what Amos says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor of thirst for water, but of hearing the word of the Lord. They shall wander from the sea to sea and from north to the east They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Now, living here in California, we are continually told that there is a drought going on. Has there ever been a time in California where there has not been a drought? Well, there's always a threat of a drought if there's not a drought going on, right? Now, our context of a drought is 
Well, when you go to the restaurant, you have to ask for water. I mean, you know, this is it's a really, really heavy drought, right? But when you go home, you can still take a shower. The drought's really, really heavy right now. You might even be able to water your lawn at least twice a week, okay? That's called a drought. Friends, that's not a drought. That is our perception of a drought. We, we've softened some of the words. We've softened the idea of what the word famine is all about. But what God is talking about here is a famine so drastic that even the people uh, who are looking for the food of God's word will not find it. And friends, that is the lay of the land in this context of 1 Samuel. There's no king Everyone is acting and behaving in a way that pleases their own desires. Corruption is in, in the place of worship. And there is a remnant of people hungry to connect with God. It's a desperate state. It's a desperate position. And so the story of 1 Samuel is found um, in our title for the series. If you look just at the top of your, your, your sheet there, it says this looking for a king, because Israel is desperately looking for someone to take leadership. They're looking ultimately for a king to lead them and to guide them, a leader to take them back to God. So, now here, here's, just the, here's the thinking of the narrator. Here's what he wants the future generations to look back and see, that in order to raise a king, God would need to raise a leader. And in order to raise a leader, God would need to restore his word in the house of the Lord. Who's in leadership right now? Eli. Is he doing a good job? No. All right? And this new leader is going to come, but as this new leader comes, God will also usher back in his word into the context of 1 Samuel. So what we see as we open up 1 Samuel is that God is in the process of raising a leader out of obscurity, and of course we know his name is Samuel, and as God is raising his leader, he's also working his providence in restoring his word in the house of the Lord. So the central message of 1 Samuel is this, how God restores his word in the house of of God, how God restores his word in the house of God, or as I put it up there, how the word of the Lord is restored to the house of the Lord. Now friends, as we look at, if you look at our text today, you will see, first of all, that the word of God was rare, but then look at chapter four, and just the first part of verse one, what does it say? And the word of Samuel came to what? All Israel. We go from rare to well done, <laughs> all right? It is throughout. How do we get there? Well, we also see a little boy, Samuel, serving as a priest. But by the time we get to the end, we see Samuel established as the prophet of God. God is at work in this passage transitioning from this place of despair, despondency, confusion, corruption, to usher in a leader who would then usher in a king 
We'll get to the story of that later. Ultimately, that king would be David. But in order to usher that leader in, he also needed to usher in the revelation of the word of God to a leader that would rightfully receive it and proclaim it. He needed to raise up that prophet. So at the beginning of the chapter, like we've seen Samuel as the boy priest, ultimately Samuel as the established prophet. So it is the opposite then of Proverbs 29, 18. Where there is a prophetic revelation, the people will be fed, satisfied, and refreshed. And isn't that what we want? That the word of God would not be hidden from us, but that the word of God would feed us, would strengthen us, would refresh us. So let's begin now by thinking about this whole concept of the fact that the word of God is rare. Chapter 3 and verse one. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Now imagine if on your lap, or in your phone, or on your iPad, you did not have a copy of the word of God. That those 13 or so copies of the Bible you have sitting on a shelf at home were not there that you did not have access to it at all. And those who were supposed to be representatives of God did not have access to that word. You might remember some things that have been passed down through the ages about who God is and what he is like. But what would life really be like? What would religious life be like? How would you seek to honor God? What would you think God is like? What would your view of him be based on? How would you know that God accepted you? How would you know that, that, that uh, or what God expected of you? How would you know how to raise your children or to be a neighbor or to be a faithful worker or to love your spouse? See, we become so accustomed to having the Bible handy that we really lose the impact of the dire condition that Israel was in during this time. They had no king. They had abandoned God as their king. They lived for themselves, doing what was right in their own eyes. They, they, they had perverted worship. So even those who wanted to seek God went into a context of worship where it was distorted and perverted. Add to that, God had not revealed himself much at all. He had not spoken to or through a prophet on a regular basis. And if and when he did speak, it was in a rare occurrence. There was no frequent visions, we're told. And like Amos said, there's a famine in the land. God's judgment was on his people. Now therefore, we may be tempted to look at that and then to look at our context and say, We don't have a famine in the land because we have God's word. Now, I would answer that by saying, true, we have God's word, but there's a different kind of famine that we have in the land, is that you can have God's word but still not be fed by it. You can have what God has revealed to mankind but choose not to look at it. So we must have eyes to see. We must have hearts that want to look into the word of God and be changed by it. We can have our vision eclipsed 
by other things, all sorts of other things. And let's just think through, what are some things that can eclipse um, our time or our pursuit or our love for the word of God? And the first thing that came to my mind as I'm just thinking through this list is false teaching. And what I mean by false teaching? False teaching that really doesn't want you to study God's word. It might even use God's word, but it doesn't want you to actually dig into it. It's, it's, it typically comes as, as a leader saying, let me tell you what the word of God says. Now this false teaching often presents itself as coming from God, but is actually drawing us away from God and his word and what his word actually says. And one example would be uh, the exclusive emphasis on the love of God that is a deliberate avoidance of any discussion about the wrath of God. You hear about people that say, you know, we gotta love God. And in particular, I'm thinking, of a, I'm thinking of a pastor right now, very well known on TV, that will not talk about sin because God doesn't, that's not how God wants me to do ministry. He just wants me to tell people that God loves them. He wants me to encourage them. And friends, when, when you simply focus on the love of God to, to the neglect of the wrath of God, that is a false gospel. That is not the truth of God's word. And we'll, we'll see that fleshed out in just a little bit. A second one would be man's philosophies. Man's philosophies. This is often seen in the arena of counseling where the ideas of man's nature and his problems and solutions are seen through the lens of Godless thinking, Freudian thought, behaviorism, the self-love or self-esteem movement all contradict what God says in his word. But yet it is the standard. And because it's the standard, people say, well, it's scientific and you know, great people in history have come to these conclusions and we, we don't go to the word of God to say, what is man like? And what is his problem? And what is his struggle? And what does God say his solution is? And so the word of God is eclipsed by this. Oftentimes it can be political ideologies. We're certainly getting into that season where people can be so consumed with a a political direction or a political party that it almost equates a relationship with God. Or maybe the measure of our true identity with Christ is measured by virtue of what party we vote for or whether we respond yes or no to a particular local or state proposition. My friends, it's easy to get sucked into that kind of stuff. But it can eclipse the word of God having its way in the life of of God's people. Sensuality and pleasure would be another one. Living for self, living for now, entertainment. Now, isn't there some kind of a team that won something that's in this area recently... No. You know what? Here's here's the reality, guys. Understand, as much as I love sports, it's entertainment. I actually interacted with a a guy from, uh, um, over is it, what's, where are the the, um, Giants play? Is it Peck Bell or what's it called? AT&T Park. All right. Different, all right, fine. As you can tell, I'm really into this, right? All right. But I, I, I interacted with him, he said, listen, he says, I, I just, you, have to, you have to know this. He says, baseball basically is, is one big bar with 22 guys in the center. 
the money comes from all the concessions. If you've ever been to a ball game, you know that's true, right? It's entertainment. That's what it is. It isn't real life. And then you can go down to Hollywood or the movies or even music and that kind of stuff. And, and how much money by culture is poured into entertainment and people that are the entertainers. We can spend all our time focusing on that and that can eclipse what God wants to teach us in his word. There's a place for those things. I enjoy sports. When we were in England, I went to a sports game. It's a lifelong dream, okay? Check, did it, right? Next on the list. But at the same time, it can consume us if we're not careful. Right? The last one would be relationships. Relationships. Are you willing to speak for God even if it might be bring difficulty to your relationships? And just think about parents interacting with children. I don't know if I want to say this to my child because that might drive them away. Well, you have a responsibility to represent God as a parent, but to do it in a loving way. Okay? We ha- our relationships sometimes are... are are above and beyond and, and, and eclipse what God wants us to do. And so these are, these are some ways, friends, that we can allow God in our context to be rare. Because we're not saying, what does the word of God say in these contexts? What does God want us to do with these things? We're, we're drifting off and we're, we're living in this world where these things are important rather than the word of God feeding us and directing us and having a balance in the context where God has placed us. So friends, although the word of God was rare in Samuel's day for a different reason, it was a, a means of judgment, it can be rare in our context because of the neglect that we have toward it. Now, last week, um, we, my wife and I went to London, and of course, to get around London, you have to go on the underground. Anyone here been on the underground in London? Okay. Um, I, it's a lot of fun, but as my wife say, it's like ants going everywhere, right? I mean, just, just packed and, and pushing and stuff like that. So I, I, I tried my best every day to say, okay, these are the places that we're going to go, and here's where we are, and trying to get the connections and kind of figure out where all the different lines cross, and there's like, I don't know, 10 to 15 or so different lines you can take, and all this kind of stuff. And so I had it all planned out. That was all good, except when we decided to change it a little bit, right? So when we changed it a little bit, then I had this little pocket map of the underground. You've probably seen that before, right? It's a pretty standard thing. Um, I had it in my pocket, and I pulled it out. And when I pulled it out, I couldn't see, I could see the lines, but I couldn't see the individual stations because I was wearing my contact lenses, which are these newfangled bifocal contact lenses, and I, I could not see the map. I knew I wanted to get somewhere, and I had it right here, but I couldn't see the map to get direction. So ultimately, I had to take my contacts off and put my glasses on. It's like, oh, okay, now I can see. And finally, we got to our destination, okay? And I just want to just, just emphasize to you, friends, that, that sometimes these things that eclipse need to be replaced. We can have the word of God. I mean, probably at home. I'm not joking. You probably have 13 copies of the Bible in some way, shape, or form. But they're all sitting there collecting dust. Okay? I just encourage you, pick one up and just run it ragged. Because you're reading it. You're using it. You're studying it. You're in it. 
All right? The word of God is, is a gift to us. And when we have it so accessible to us, but don't use it, that is truly a crying shame. And I just wonder if the reality is that we just don't value what we have because we have so much of it. If it was taken away from us, what we'll be thankful for just, you know, one page of the book of Ezekiel because it's God's word. See, do we, do we love it? Do we understand how important it is and, and how kind God has been in revealing himself to us? So something must change in us if God is, God's word is not going to be rare in our lives. And, and in Israel, something must change if God's word is not going to be rare in Israel. Eyes will need to open. Revelation will need to come again. Because without the word of God present in the lives of the people, the Bible says they will cast off restraint. They will run wild in the streets. So we've seen here the word of God is rare. But now the narrative takes a turn and we will see one of those rare occasions when the word of God is now revealed. Right? And this is the bulk of our passage here is God revealing himself to Samuel. The word of God is revealed. Now it begins by setting up the stage here, just kind of giving you the pieces of the puzzle so that this, this, this story or this event can be understood. So beginning at verse two. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. And so there's three things really that are highlighted here. Number one, Eli's eyesight was growing dim. All right, he, he, was, he was getting old, but getting old to the point that he really had difficulty seeing. Secondly, Eli was lying down in his own place. All right, he's sleeping in a different place than Samuel is sleeping. And then God's lamp that would be the, 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 the lamp, the fire in the tabernacle had not yet gone out. So it was likely early in the morning. But I do think that there's, there's a veiled symbolism here. That the, the lamp of God had not yet gone out. There, there, there's this hope screaming from this passage in the context of the despair that is going on here. God is doing something. God is at work. God is raising up some kind of a leader. And we ultimately see that it's Samuel here. The whole of the Eli Samuel story is, is one of contrast. Eli's old, Samuel is young. Eli is declining, Samuel is steadily growing. We see six occasions in the story where Samuel is growing or he's, he's, he's making progress in his capacity in serving the Lord. And God is going to break into the story in a rather dramatic way on one particular day, one particular night. At that time, it says, Eli's worthless sons, um, this is another comparison, and Hannah's chosen son um, is another comparison. Let's think then about out at that time. Then he goes and says, then. Then the Lord called Samuel. I'm gonna divide this now into four different parts. There are four parts to his calling. The, the word called, in, from verses four to verse 11, I think it is, is used, um, sorry, to verse 
Yeah, in those seven verses, it's used 11 times. So clearly the, the emphasis and the focus here is on the calling of Samuel. Samuel's calling is, is gonna unfold then in four repetitive and developing scenes, all right? So scene number one, this is the first calling, begins at verse four. Then the Lord called Samuel and said, here I am, and he ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down. So in this first calling, Samuel as the servant boy naturally thinks that it's Eli that is calling um, him, right? That just makes sense. Why? Because Eli is there to serve, sorry, Samuel's there to serve Eli. He's there to be his assistant. If he hears someone call in the middle of the night, remember he's old, he can't see, it makes sense that Samuel would want to come if he hears Eli calling him. All right, calling number two is identical here. Verse six, and the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son, lie down. Now, the narrator here wants to help us a little bit so we don't get kind of uh, distracted in what's going on. And so he, he explains the situation. He helps us understand why it is that Samuel wasn't responding to the Lord when he is calling. Verse seven, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not been revealed to him. Now, careful here, this is not a statement about Samuel's spiritual condition, okay? But about his experience as a receiver of God's revealed word. In other words, Samuel is not to blame here. He had not yet received any prophetic word from the Lord. It's, it's a new experience for him. He had not had the practice of God speaking to him as a prophet. So the only person he could think it could be is Eli. But this helps us now understand what's going on here and to ask, answer that question, okay, you know, how come he's not thinking it's God? Because he's not even aware. It's not even part of his bandwidth yet. Now, friends, this is also a reminder that God is patient and kind in revealing his grace to us. Now when you're interacting with other believers, maybe you're discipling, maybe you're, you're trying to teach, there, there can be a time when you get a little frustrated that people aren't getting it fast enough. We gotta be careful with that because God reveals himself by degrees with different people at different paces. And so we gotta be patient with people and see God uh, just reveal himself and lights go on and, 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 and the, the, the truth of God's word just penetrating hearts. And there's just a good example here of God's patience with his people. Let's look at calling number three. This time when Samuel hears the Lord and thinks it is Eli, Eli is perceptive enough to recognize that it's the Lord that was calling Samuel. So he tells Samuel what he should do the next time the voice is calling for him. He says, Say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And so we, we now look at the fourth calling, and that begins at verse 10. We're given here a fuller picture. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. And what we see here is, is not just the voice of the Lord calling. We also see the Lord's presence and proximity to Samuel. Samuel 
is having a face-to-face interaction with the creator of the universe. I just ponder that. The word of God was rare. He didn't know God before. And all of a sudden, boom. Now, that's the calling. Now, how are we to, to respond or how are we to apply this passage and the things that have taken place so far to our own context? I want to be careful here. There is no one in this room that is a prophet. There's no one in this room that hears God audibly speak to them because God does not do that anymore. But God still speaks. And he speaks through the word of God. And the word of God and the the spirit of God work together to communicate to us God's word, his revelation to our hearts. And so the question is this. Do we say, as we know that God wants to interact with us, speak, Lord, for your servant hears? Are we the kind of people that truly want to hear what God has to say? Now, I, I know most of you people here. I know you're here, and you, you, you're, you come week after week, and you sit under my preaching an hour at a time. You must want to hear Either that or you're a glutton for punishment. But I want to emphasize it again here because there's this attitude of coming to God's word and saying, God, I don't just want to read it to say that I've read it. I want to read your word because I want to hear what you have to say about me. I want your word to affect my life. I want it to change my heart. I want it to change my focus. I want it to to permeate the things that I'm thinking about and longing for. Can we truly say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears? Are we truly looking for God to reveal himself through his word, or are we simply seeking to find him through feelings, experiences, unusual circumstances? Now friends, what's really interesting about this passage is that Samuel doesn't kind of say, wow, I had an experience with the God of the universe. Woo, let me go tell people about this experience. What is the focus of this passage? It is not the experiential interaction, which is real. And it's not described there. We don't have the emotions of his experience at that point in time. But the focus here is that God spoke and the message that God spoke. And friends, that is what we need to be thinking about. What is the message that God has for us? And sadly, we can be distracted by the experience that we may have when we interact with God, rather than focus on the message that God is communicating to us through his word. Now notice Samuel's hearing now, Samuel's hearing. There are basically three points to uh, the emphasis of God's message to Samuel. The first thing is this, the Lord reveals a message of judgment that will become national news 
It says, verse 11, then the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And that means that this is going to be talked about. When they're sitting down having their cake and their coffee and their tea or whatever they're going to have that morning, they're sitting down and they're going to talk about, did you hear what God did in Shiloh? This is national news. This is front and center on CNN. Yeah, even CNN would report this. This will rock the nation. Secondly, verse 12, on that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and did not, he did not restrain them. So what's going on here is this, that God will do what he said he would do in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 27 through 36, when the nameless prophet spoke to Eli directly. God now is coming after the prophet had spoken to Eli directly about the judgment that was going to come in his house, and he's reinforcing it through Samuel who's now being raised up to be the prophet. In other words, what that guy said, this is going to happen. This guy coming to you was not some kind of a freak thing. If you hear judgment once, look out. If you hear it twice, <laughs> I don't know what else to say. You're in a really, really bad way. Here is Eli. He's hearing it twice. God takes sin Seriously, he takes the corruption that Eli allowed to continue in the context of the house of God seriously. And ultimately, Eli and his family would be destroyed. The third thing is found in verse 14. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. So, Summarize it this way, the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for. In other words, this judgment is set and will take place. It is irreversible. If the the gracious provision God has made for the forgiveness of sins is spurned, is scorned, is disdained, and is despised, there is nothing left but the fearful prospect of judgment. This now clarifies and informs those haunting words we found in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 25. Just flip back there if you have your Bibles and look at it. Here's Samuel's words to his sons. Not Samuel, I mean Eli's words to his sons his wicked, worthless sons. If someone sins against a man, God will meditate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. The sons of Eli had passed the point of no return Their judgment was set. Their hearts were hardened against God and judgment was the ultimate consequence for them. 
Now, in case you think that such strong language is limited to the Old Testament, I want to draw your attention to the New Testament, to Hebrews chapter 10. Now, let's read a little bit of that. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 26 and following. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, that doesn't mean that you've come to faith. That means that the gospel has been faithfully presented to you. You've you've heard the gospel, but you go on sinning. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Your only hope as someone who is a sinner is the gospel. But if you brush the gospel aside, if you say in your heart, I don't need that, that doesn't have any relevance to my life or something along those lines, you have no hope because that is your only hope. Continue reading. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is the lesser. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he has sanctified and has outraged the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of grace? Is that strong language? New Testament, you reject the gospel and you consistently reject the gospel. You stomp on the truth of what Christ did on the cross. You mock it, you scorn it. There comes a point in time when your heart is so hardened there's no other hope for you if that is how you continue to think and to believe and to behave. Verse 30 For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. See, too much of American Christianity thinks, you know, oh, the gospel's just kind of floating out there, and it's a good thing, God loves you. you God loves you, just just love him back. Yes, God loves you, but there's so much more to it. Again, we'll get to that in just a minute. But you can't, you can't tread down the gospel and expect somehow to, for God to accept you on your own terms. Clearly the prospect of judgment is no small thing. Now imagine if this was the message that you heard for the first time from God. What would you do if you heard the voice of the Lord the first time? What would be going through your head? Wow, what an experience to hear God's voice. Again, do you you think Samuel's like, oh, this is great, I heard God speak. I think not. In fact, I don't think that Samuel was able to go back to sleep based on this passage. Look at verse 15. Samuel lay until morning. That's what I've been doing, trying to get back on my American time. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was what? Afraid to tell the vision to Eli. 
This is weighty stuff. Now, understand this. Samuel wasn't aware that Eli had a nameless prophet come to him and give him a prophecy of judgment. For Samuel, this is new information. This is God's revelation. And this is a weighty revelation to look in the face of the person who is your mentor and say, your family, by the way, God says this, not me, your family is going to be judged. I think that I would have difficulty going back to sleep, wouldn't you? God spoke to me audibly. I probably would be shaking. God of the universe, the creator, the sovereign ruler, has stooped down and revealed himself to me. I I, I think I would be shaking in my boots, but it's the message here that is what consumes Samuel. It's the content of what is revealed here. No sooner is Samuel called to the prophetic task that he finds how difficult and heart-rending it can be. I'm sure he didn't want to say this to Eli at all. He's caught in the dilemma only a true prophet knows. He is duty-bound to speak God's word, even if it's a word of judgment, he will speak judgment because God's truth is at stake, but he cringes to speak it because he is moved with compassion. Now friends, can I just step back and give you a pastoral perspective? There have been things that I've had to say this morning that are hard. And sometimes we come to a passage and it's like, I really don't want to in my heart. I didn't wake up this morning and say, oh, I can't wait to speak about this. And maybe it's a, you know, maybe it's a subject like adultery or, or lying or anger or whatever it might be. And it's just like, wow, Lord, I have to faithfully represent you, but I have compassion for people who are struggling with these things. You understand that tension? And it's easy to say, you know what, I'm just going to soften it a little bit. I'm just going to not give the complete picture of what this message is all about. I mean, you can, you can imagine probably you know, Samuel wrestling with that in his, in his being, in his, his, his new role that he is still struggling with. He's uneasy with the truth. Should he soften it somehow so that it might be easier? Should he leave some of the more damaging realities out and only focus on the good bits? Dale Davis's words are helpful for us. Just listen to what he says. There is always this tension in the word of God and any authentic messenger of that word knows and lives in it. If a preacher, for example, never places you under the criticism of God's word, never tells you your sin, but only smothers you with comfort, you must wonder if he's a phony. If his preaching contains only the judgment note and seldom offers comfort and encouragement, one must ask if he actually cares for God's people. If one has a high regard both for the truth of God, even if it's judgment, and for the troubles of the church, he will retain the proper tension in the biblical word. He will both afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. 
So let me just repeat that last section there. The faithful minister of God's word will both afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. And friends, there are times if, if you're even you know, in a Sunday school class or maybe you're a, you're a parent speaking to your children, there are times when you have to represent God and you know that it's going to be a tough conversation. It may not be received well, but you must. You're duty bound to speak for God because that is the role and the function that he's placed you in. And so you do it with compassion, with concern, but hopefully with clarity painting the full picture of what God says, but with a heart of tenderness and concern for those who are hearing it. So what is Samuel to do? How will Eli take this message of judgment on his house? What Samuel, as I mentioned, doesn't know is he doesn't know that Eli has already had that visit from that nameless prophet, but Eli seems to understand Samuel's reluctance here. And so with tender words, he draws out God's message to Samuel. Notice verse 16, but Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, he said, here I am. Now it would appear that something is, is beginning to awake in Eli also. He perceives that God is the one who's calling Samuel. He knows that God has said something to Samuel, and he knows that judgment is about to come on his house, even before Samuel speaks. So he speaks tenderly to Samuel, calling him my son. Just think about this whole story. There's some irony going on there, isn't there? He had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who would not listen to the voice of their father. And here is Samuel, little Samuel, boy Samuel, who every time he hears Samuel, Samuel comes running. (laughs) And tenderly now, he speaks to him. He's tender, but he's also firm. He pressed him out of his insecurity and fear to speak the word as a faithful prophet. You can can almost imagine uh, Eli becoming aware of what was going on in that moment, that God was now revealing, that God was raising up. And so, so he's encouraging Samuel, listen, I know you're afraid, I know this message is hard, but you need to tell me what it is. So he, he, he raises the stakes by what he says here. And he says, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me, may God do so to you, and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. Yikes, I guess I better tell you then. Now I want you to notice what I'm calling Samuel's prophesying or proclaiming. Verse 18, so Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. That's a really, really important verse, isn't it? He told him everything and he hid nothing from him. I would hope that that would be the legacy of every person that is a pastor proclaiming the word of God. That would be said about them. He told him everything that God said and hid nothing from him. In those words we find the faithful response of a true prophet. He spoke every 
word revealed to him by God. He hid nothing from Eli. This must have been a difficult conversation for Samuel to have with Eli, but he was duty-bound to do it. How does Eli respond to the news? It says, and he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. It might appear at face value to be very cavalier on Eli's part, but as John Woodhouse, I think, helps emphasize here, this may have been Eli's finest moment as he acknowledged and accepted the rightness of God's judgment. He says, it is the Lord, let him do what seems good to him. Eli seems to be resigned to the justice of God's holiness. Remember what Hannah said in her song, chapter two and verse two, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, there is no rock like our God. Eli has an awareness of the God that he was supposed to be serving and he understands his character to be just, to be right, and to be holy. And so he is acknowledging that God is fair and is right in his assessment of the situation and the judgment that he is about to receive from God. Now friends, just a little pause there. I would hope that as God reveals himself and reveals ourselves in the context of his word, that we would have that same attitude. God, you're holy, you're right. I need to receive and accept what it is you're saying to me as true. Even when God exercises judgment, he is acting out of his holy character. He is just, he is fair, and worthy of our submission. That is what Eli is resigned to do. So we, we've seen the fact that the word of God is rare. We've seen now how this, this, this rare occasion, he, God reveals himself to Samuel with this message about Eli. And now we move into the section where the word of God is restored. Where the word of God is restored. This passage now demonstrates, and the rest of this passage here demonstrates Samuel's credentials as a faithful prophet of God. It's important, these few verses here are important for those who are reading this to say, okay, is, is Samuel a real prophet or, or is this kind of a one-time thing? And there's four things ultimately that are said here. First of all, verse 19, and Samuel grew and the Lord was with him. The Lord was with Samuel, Okay. In other words, as a prophet, the Lord was with him. Secondly, the Lord let none of Samuel's words fail. It expresses it a little differently, and let none of his words fall to the ground. The idea is they're, they're failing words. They're words that are empty. They're, fa- they're words that just didn't make it. No, Samuel's words, when they are spoken, they all accomplish what God has set them out to accomplish. So when Samuel prophesies, when Samuel speaks for God, what Samuel says, and we don't have everything recorded here, but when Samuel says it, representing God, it happens. The third thing in verse 20, and all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. So the Lord saw to it that Samuel's reputation reached all the borders of Israel. That's 
Dan to Beersheba. And the fourth thing here is in verse 21, and the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. In other words, this was continued, ongoing revelation that was taking place now in Shiloh where Samuel now is established as the prophet of the Lord. So in the context of moral depravity, religious corruption, and weak leadership, God raises up a young boy out of obscurity to restore the prophetic ministry of the word of God back into the house of the Lord. And now verse one of chapter four. And the word of Samuel, that would be the word of the Lord, came to all Israel. (laughs) The word of God was rare. Now the word of God is rampant. And Israel is being refreshed by this renewed hearing from God in the land, hearing from God in the tabernacle at Shiloh. Let me now draw our attention to four lessons that I just want to pull out of this in closing. Lesson one is this, a lesson in providence. As we look at our changing circumstances, we can be sure that God is present and at work to accomplish his purposes on the earth. Things might look dire. The rising tide of scorn and intolerance for those who faithfully follow the Lord, the rising threat of Islam, jihadist threats, the rising immorality that is shoved in the face of God's people, the perversion of society to call evil good and good evil, these are but some of the difference or difficulties we might be facing. But God is fully aware of all of these things and he is faithfully working his will to accomplish his purposes in the lives of his people. So don't despair. Put your trust in him. Now hear this. Ride the wave of God's providence. God has called you to live your life now in this sin-cursed world in this messy context. So get on that surfboard of God's providence and ride it, don't fight it. I'm not saying don't fight the culture in that sense, I'm saying, listen, God has placed you here now to accomplish his purposes. He's working through you. Hannah gave up her son providentially to ride a wave she didn't even know existed. That God was at work, moving in the house of God to restore his word back to Israel. Rest in the providence of God. Okay? There's a lesson in leadership. A lesson in leadership. God takes seriously leadership. In particular, God takes seriously leadership in the context of his church. He will not tolerate for long those who treat his gospel lightly, who are willing to distort it and soften its gracious blow. We who stand before you as pastors, as teachers who minister the word are called to be faithful to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And friends, that is a difficult task. Born with an attitude of humility 
before God and a genuine care and compassion for the hardness of the gospel that leads to life. See, there's, there's a, there is a hard side of the gospel, is there not? And the hard side is, yes, God, you're right, <laughs> this is sinful. And yes, God, you're right, I need to repent. But through the process of the gospel, we are continually, day by day, being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We are growing and we're maturing in our faith. And so the hardness of the gospel is the means by which we get to life in the gospel. And if we're not willing to proclaim the whole counsel of God, there will not be life in the gospel. In fact, it's very possible there will not be even any gospel to get us anywhere. So it is through God's loving confrontation that we are brought into fellowship with the sovereign God. There's also now a lesson in judgment. We don't like to be judged, but it is God who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing. He will be fair, he will be holy. Um, Just like Eli saw the rightness in God's judgment, so must we, and it might be because we have a soft view of the gospel that is so prevalent in our American culture um, that we struggle with this. But please understand this, Jesus came to this earth not to be an example to follow, although he is a perfect example, but to go to Jerusalem, to be handed over to the authorities who would mock him and beat him and whip him and ultimately crucify him. But it is the spiritual significance that is of greater importance to us that is all connected with that, for it is on the cross where Jesus takes upon himself the sin of the world. And what is the purpose of Jesus taking upon himself the sin of the world? The reason he takes the sin of the world on his shoulders is so that the wrath of God could be poured out on him. And that's why we began our whole time this morning. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, for our sakes he, that's God the Father, made him, that is Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Think about the cross this way. The heaviest reality in all of history was not our sin on the shoulders of Christ, but the wrath of God being poured out on that sin. I just want you to think about that. We all have to deal with the wrath of God. Man has to deal with that. But we who have become children of God, have had our sin removed from our shoulders, placed on the shoulders of Christ, and have, have, he has received on him the full brunt of the wrath of the Father. That is weighty. That is powerful. That is judgment. Judgment is required and is only satisfied through Christ. And last but not least, there's a lesson on the word of God that flows out of this. The word of God both informs and invites us. I pulled this from J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God. Here's what he says. God, our maker, knows all about us before we say anything 
but we can know nothing about him unless he tells us. Here, therefore, is a further reason why God speaks to us, not only to move us to do what he wants, but to enable us to know him so that we may love him. Therefore, God sends his word to us in the character of both information and invitation. It comes to woo us as well as to instruct us. Not, it not nearly puts us in the picture of what God has done and is doing, but also calls us into personal communion with the loving God himself. So the word of God is not simply there to give us information. The word of God is there to give us information, but ultimately that will draw us into this relationship with Christ. So if we've simply been looking at the word of God saying, I got this fact down, I got this fact down, I know this happened here, and I know this story, that's all good. That's a part of it. But all of that should be the means by which God is drawing your attention to himself and wooing you into this ongoing pursuit and loving relationship with the God of the universe. If we set aside the word of God, that doesn't take place. We set aside the word of God, we're left with some kind of religious systems that may have all the same garb, but void of this word-centered ministry in our lives. So when you hear a pastor rightly say, read your Bible, you probably get tired of a pastor saying that. Understand, it's not because I want you to read so many chapters. <laughs> it's because I want you to be wooed in your relationship with God. That's what God desires for all of us. Lord, help us today to consider the incredible impact that the word of God has to the life of your people, to the life of your church. And Lord, those who are hungry and desiring to, to, to glean from it, Lord, not purely for informational purposes, but Lord, to, to grow and to, to be interacting with you through it, Lord. May you stir up in us a hunger for your word, a hunger, Lord, that, that draws us to know you, a hunger that draws us to see ourselves as you see us so that we can, by virtue of our uh, our repentance and, and the forgiveness that you grant and the, the restoration that we have because of our relationship with you and because of what you've done on the cross, Lord, that through all of that, we would continue to grow day by day in your word, from your word, on your word, with your word. Because, Lord, it is your breath, your heart revealed to us. It is so precious Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for your sacrifice. Thank you, Lord, for the redemption that we have in you. Thank you, Lord, that, that judgment has been pronounced for all who have come to know you as their Lord and Savior, and that judgment has been pronounced already on the shoulders of your Son, Jesus Christ. And as we gather today, today and we celebrate the Lord's table, may we be mindful, Lord, that has already been accomplished for us, that your wrath has already been poured out on your son, 
and that the cross proclaims the victory that we have in you because of your death and because of you giving your body for us. Lord, thank you that wrath and judgment has already taken place for us and that your son bore the, the greatest weight when you poured that wrath out. And that enduring diligence to stay on the cross and to receive that is the greatest demonstration of love there is for mankind. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for who you are, what you have done, and for drawing us into your family and for giving us your word. Thank you, Lord.